Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Jesus, Dietrich, and Me. This is episode number 88, and we are beginning a brand new book this week entitled Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Meditations on the Psalms, formerly titled My Soul Finds Rest. Uh, this is your first time listening. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Tyler. I get to serve as the associate pastor at Family of God Lutheran Church down here in southwest Detroit and at St. Stephen, which is also in southwest Detroit. And joined with me as they are every week is Pastor Jim Hill, who is our senior pastor, and also uh, Vicar Nick, who serves as our vicar. And today we have a very, very special guest joining us, uh, Mike. Yes. Mike, I'm withholding your uh, I'm withholding your, <laughs> your last name uh, so that nothing that you say can be held against you until you tell us uh, where you serve. Uh, you're joining us from the awful land of Ohio. And uh, we promise not to hold that against, uh, pull that against you. So uh, today we're going to be talking with Mike. We're going to be uh, diving into this first psalm, Psalm number one twenty-seven. We will be sure to hit the follies of the week. Uh, but Pastor Hill was just talking with Mike offset, and uh, we wanted to have a couple questions because you just finished seminary, correct? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So you just finished. You were just ordained this past weekend. Yep. Yep. New pastor yeah. smell. He has, he has the new like pastor the new smell. Cars, like you a new yeah. smell. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Yes. Yeah. I asked him if uh, I asked him if the, the the stole was a little heavy, and you said it wasn't too bad. I was like, man, I remember like sweating bullets as it was getting put on me. Well, like I said, I was endowed with superpowers, and I didn't feel the uh, <laughs> the right. weight of it at the time. But yes, as you could feel the the humanness receding, and now the <laughs> divinity coming forward. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, what church do you serve at? I serve at uh, Concordia Lutheran Church and Preschool in South Toledo. So you did the you did alt route, alternate correct? route, yes. Yep. And you like it there? Yes, love it. Yeah. Good. Demographics are kind of across the board. I would say across the board, yeah. Yep. It, which is nice. Do they uh, do they hate the Wolverines down there as much as they? You know, Toledo's kind of a confused city. I would say a confused a, city? a confused city. It depends on where you go and. The closer you get to that border up north, it, you see more blue flags and such, or split families, um, unfortunately. You know. Families divide. Families are, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Pastor Hill, you wanted to ask Mike a question about Dietrich? Well, same question I asked Nick way, way long ago. But you know, what, if anything, did they teach you about Bonhoeffer, the professors, and uh, what was the general tone how did they feel about Keeping it? Keeping in mind that now that you're out of seminary, they can't come after you. <laughs> no, but they can go after Nick. Here. Oh, that's true. <laughs> so no loss. They know I'm closely associated said, with no. him. No loss. Yeah. No, but in all seriousness, I would say it was kind of a mixed uh, a mixed bag. I had uh, one particular professor who was a little bit more favorable towards Dietrich. Um, talked, recommended a lot of his works, uh, but then there were some other ones who questioned his uh, his understanding or his view of Scripture. That seemed to be the big one. Kind of like a, a neo-Orthodox view okay. of Scripture, kind of like with uh, Herman Sasa okay. type of thing in that in that realm. That could, I don't know how true that was. I don't know if that's... Uh, you, you could probably help me out with that. Um, and also some question is confessional basis as yeah. well. I've but never, it was yeah. a mixed bag. Yeah, I... We were talking. We had a. We were just talking that we had an episode where you know one of the biggest I think critiques of Dietrich was kind of his view of uh, his his view of discipleship can often get confused or mixed up um, with you know 
works righteousness, bending hard towards the law. This is what you must do. If you don't do this, then are you really a Christian? And I think that we actually ask those questions all the time, um, where if you're not, if you don't have the fruits of the Spirit, if you're acting like a, I almost said a bad word, if you're acting like a jerk and you're not serving, you're not loving, I think it's fair to actually, it's fair to call your faith into question because good works are naturally a a result of what happens uh, once you have received Christ as your as your savior once you've been baptized once you your faith starts to grow those works start to happen and so cost of discipleship throw a quick quote in only those who believe obey and only those who obey believe that would throw our professors in into uh, right panic yeah right and it's and it's not a it's not a a sense of well if you it's because you really want to kind of walk the line of the Galatian heresy, right? Well, if you were really a Christian, then you would be circumcised. If you were really a Christian, you would be, you would do this, that, and the other thing, that theology we've called of Jesus plus. But I, I, I don't think, you've mentioned, Pastor Hill, that when you get married, your life changes, right? When you got, when you got married. <laughs> Seems to me you fish even more. Hey, we went, we went fishing, yeah. Noah, Nick, even the apartments change. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> nice and tidy and neat and clean. I'm shocked. Probably she lets them in there. You're right. But when so when you get married though, you're not going to the bars, you're not yeah. picking up women, you're not doing these not that you not that you were doing that when you were single anyway, but you know what I mean. Like you're you're not going fishing as often as you used to because you even said when we were out the other day, you said, I want to go spend some time with Pauline before before she goes to work. Your life changes. And so it's the same thing with, with the Christian. When when you are married to Christ, you your life changes, and your your attitudes change. The way that you treat people change. It's not a it's not a way of earning any of that. It's just a natural thing that happens because of what because your old self has been put to death, and your new life is now in Christ. No, I agree with you. It, the uh, but it goes along with another another guy that was just uh, sometimes demonized, not just at seminary but across our our circles is John Art, True Christianity. Yeah, yeah, I it's forgot. A, it's a book I try to yeah. read every couple of years. I mean, yeah, sometimes he might push a few things, but overall, he, he it's one of the most popular books in <laughs> Lutheranism. Uh, John Gerhardt was, or John Art was John Gerhardt's pastor. So I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, we we study his works and it, we see him as an Orthodox father. So I think a lot of it comes down to um, being called a Pietist. I think that's what some of the it's the worst thing you can call a Lutheran is a pietist. <laughs> it, How do you shut up a Lutheran? It, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So right. I, a lot of that, I think, too, plays in. So uh, let me just yeah. interject yeah. see what he says. So after extensive study, I think the pattern of Bonhoeffer is his theory of discipleship is I, I do the things that God commanded because I am saved, not in order to be saved, uh, and not in order to stay saved, but because I'm saved, I obey. Because I'm saved, I do the things and don't do the things um, that Christ forbids. So I think that, to me, that's the confusion. Immediately you leap to pietist or... (sighs) You're an Anabaptist, or <laughs> it's almost like politically. You may want to edit this. It's almost yeah. politically like when they shut, want to shut you up, they just say you're racist and homophobic. 
Okay. Right. That's You're a pietist. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. not digging that up. It's that's, just the same. True. It's a weapon. It weaponized right. pietism. Yeah. But okay. Yep. So I, I mean, we're gonna. I'm glad that we brought that up because we're actually gonna be uh, in this psalm, in this commentary of this psalm. Uh, we're gonna be. We're gonna get to the very end of what Dietrich's sermon on Psalm 127. I'm just, here's a spoiler alert. Uh, we, through Jesus Christ, his son, have access to him and receive forgiveness for all of our sins. Uh, he's he's very, he, he said, God is building for eternity. God's building for eternity is forgiveness. Dietrich fully understands forgiveness. He fully understands that we have life in Christ and we have nothing apart from Christ. I think what when we were talking about the episode of Defending Dietrich, a lot of his critiques are... And what they'll say is for for Dietrich, and I think it's always important. We've talked about this a number of times. His context matters. His context of who he's speaking to, why he's speaking to them, matters. And if you're dealing with with people that that are, I mean, he's he's dealing with the face of the Nazis, which are right. They're trying to fully take over and and re uh, put different you know new DNA in in the German people and change lifestyles and different ideologies. And that are dramatically contrary to God's word. He's he's gonna be a little bit more finish the finish the word for me. Yeah, more controversial. He's gonna be a little bit more controversial, which I think is most of the critics are midgets kicking at a giant. <laughs> but never mind. <laughs> Jeez. Yes. So, what would they do in that situation? They would probably be like most Lutheran pastors: shut up, get my paycheck. Right, and we have and we have exhausted that. So, well, I'm just thinking, going back to John Art again, uh, his circumstances in, in the what they call the the era of dead orthodoxy, in a sense, you know, after the Thirty Years' War, people are living like heathens, uh, pastors are running around, sleeping around on their wives. It was a yet they had, they had an orthodox theology, and Art called them out. Yeah. So uh, wow, that sounds like today, but never mind. I was going to say, Sazé did the same thing. Yeah, very similar yeah. circumstances in some sense. Yeah. Or you said it's the same thing today? Well, what did he say the problems were? Oh, the same problem. The same problems. Same problems. Yes. yes. We'll get to that in a little bit. <laughs> All right. I think we've exhausted. Polly. Mike, it's good to be with you. Uh, thanks for being with us. We hope that Nick is treating you well. We hope that his couch is comfortable tonight. And uh, Does he make you to... bait his hook? No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> he said no. So we're excited to be with you. Uh, going to be joining us at our staff meeting later on this evening, and uh, going to have a good have a good trip. And we've told that once uh, Nick goes back to seminary, Mike is welcome whenever he wants. So, all right, it's time for Folly of the Week, and I'm going to kick it off because I was going through Twitter this morning, and <laughs> I saw something that literally made me laugh out loud. Well, there was a journalist from New York that was that was uh, celebrating the fact that this was either this morning or yesterday afternoon, um, they had a bulldozer that was going over that was going over the all of these confiscated dirt bikes and all of these confiscated ATVs because they were uh, terrorizing the state of New York. Here's the quote. As soon as I can pull it up, there it goes. Not pigs with. Thieves with illegal guns terrorizing. No, the ATVs, right? Yes. Okay. So this was Just the NYC. Putting it context. Yeah, this was the NYC mayor. This is what he said about this. He says, as we stand in the shadow of the Freedom Tower, which is, is that the. It's just the monument. That's what I thought, the, the monument for, the, for 9 11. Yeah. yeah. 
As we stand in the shadow of the Freedom Tower, we are freeing ourselves of these destructive pieces of machinery that are on our streets. Again, not guns. They will be crushed today so that they can never terrorize our city again. And then at the end, it's, this isn't his quote, but this is what the, what the journalist said. Good riddance to all illegal dirt bikes and ATVs. And then it's a video literally literally of, of a bulldozer going over all of these dirt bikes. And then the threat of the comments are just absurd. They're like, we're so glad that we're, that we're taking time to, to make sure that we're ridding our city of dirt bikes and ATVs and not, yeah, not weapons of actual destruction and things like that. It's just absurd. With all of the issues that are going on in New York, this is what they're most concerned with. I just, I found that funny to me. Yes. I trust. You're... I'm just wondering why a dirt bike is illegal. Yeah, I was also wondering that too. I mean, there's no dirt. <laughs> I mean, if it's, it's licensed, a... it's legal. Tell me it's unlicensed, then I guess it's illegal. But uh, well, in and of itself, it's not. We I mean, don't have that problem here. We have these little four-wheeler things that or many run bikes. up and down the streets, yeah, and half too. half the residential streets now have speed bumps to uh, slow them down. Yeah. We should confiscate them and run them over. What's yours? Mine. Oh, the planet's been saved. And Justin Trudeau has accomplished the impossible by announcing that by the end of the year he will no longer allow Canadians to import or produce or distribute plastic straws and plastic tableware. Don't you feel good? Should we? Should I'm pretty sure. I'm sure to sure this? the glaciers stopped melting at that announcement. The polar bears are applauding. <laughs> The turtles are are excited now, too. Oh, I'm sure they are. Oh, my goodness, yes. But they say these things with absolutely straight faces, like Uh, they've done something. I know. You talk about virtue signalers. uh, Trudeau's probably at the top of that list, along with a lot of these mayors of these blue states and blue cities. You had an interesting one, too, Mr. Mr. Nick. More of a sad folly. Um, Just the fact that uh, this past... Sunday was Father's Day, but it was also the the Juneteenth holiday, and I have nothing wrong with Juneteenth. If you want to celebrate, that's great. We should celebrate, you know, the slaves being freed. But when, well, the uh, the announcement, the announcement of Texas, the slaves, right of in Texas, state. this wasn't. This often gets right. just kind of brought in as a what a generic celebration of freedom, Realized. which is yeah, which yeah. is which is great. I mean, the the celebration of the freedom of slavery that's a great thing and deserves to be celebrated. But let's. Let's not let's not uh, be deceived. This is the Juneteenth was the celebration of the general bringing news to Texas that the slaves in Texas, everyone else was free. <laughs> right, everyone else was. Finally, everybody was. Yes. And that's fine. That's great to celebrate that. But the fact that uh, in a lot of cases that completely overshadowed uh, Father's Day was very, uh, really, yeah, folly to me, um, especially when I, I think that fatherless homes is probably the biggest issue or one of the biggest issues especially among black families that do you remember you probably don't remember but yet yesterday i was reading you a list of whiteness crimes oh that's right and one of them was white people think the nuclear nuclear family is the best right okay that's only a white white crime white value white value yeah right and i think that if we had more fathers in households of this country and this this city would look a lot different. Yeah. Um, and the fact that we're not even celebrating or talking about Father's Day is just really uh, frustrating. Well, I think that's 
I think that's the epitome of what's actually what's wrong with the country. If you ask me, uh, we're, we've been we made exhausted this this commentary that the deconstruction of the American family, the deconstruction of a, the the a, a godly family with fathers and mothers and children and and biblical Bible based God given truths and values. The government and the world have taken these things away, and this is this is case number one. The fact that the the the, the fact that slaves were set free that is a wonderful thing. Nobody is disagreeing with that on this podcast or ever, at least in our circle of of people. But what we're saying is that that is now the, the talk about freedom. The talk about that is overshadowing a greater issue, if you ask me, which is that fathers are no longer honored. Now, there's some pretty pathetic excuses for fathers that are out there. And maybe that's, you know, that's part of the reason that they felt the need to do that. But the the world has created that. The world has celebrated fatherlessness. The world has has actually made ways for fatherlessness and and, and condoned that and enabled that. And, and this is just another way. So yes, Juneteenth, great thing to be celebrated, not on Father's Day. Uh, it just, maybe it just so happened that because Juneteenth fell on Father's Day that it just took, took precedence. But I agree with you. That was not the, not the time and place. At least you didn't have a, uh, a, uh, Juneteenth and pride service, uh, at your church that completely took away the, from the gospel. That was about half the churches in America over the weekend. Just look at all the social medias. Yeah, anything I would say right now would get us in trouble. So let's go to the sermon. I, I like getting in trouble. Getting in trouble is fun. This is what we do. We haven't been visited by Homeland Security yet. Yes. All right. You ready to go with the uh, the sermon for today? Yeah. So what so, year was it written? 1926. So this was Dietrich's 20 years old when he writes yeah. this sermon. Okay. So he's a third. I believe he's a third year student. Is that what it says? He's yeah. a third year student. Is it a he's preaching a, seminar? Preaching. Yeah. yeah, so it was just, what year was it again? 26. Okay, so 1926 is um, before the rise of Hitler, three years before. Um, and uh, the war, first war, ended in 1918. 1923 to 24, they had uh, massive inflation. We think we have inflation problems. Which What's our do. annual rate of inflation? According, according to who? That's something like eight, right? Okay. Yeah. Their inflation rate was 21% per day. The annual rate was like 2,900. Anyway, That's I have some of the German money from that period. You know, 5 million mark notes, 10 million mark notes. And um, at one point they stopped... Um, printing on both sides because it was too costly. So you had like 30 million mark note, but one one, uh, one side was blank. People were literally getting paid and carrying their pay home in wheelbarrows of worthless money. And you learned very quickly to spend your money as soon as you got it. It's lost 20, 21% of value. Um, 24, they, they managed to um, resolve that. Um, at the same time, um, we don't think about this, but they, the Versailles Treaty, Germany got whacked with reparations of 
an enormous amount of money, like like a third of their uh, yeah. national income. So he so, so it's it instability, is right? What I'm saying. So it says in the uh, in the little introduction here uh, on May twentieth, which is when he delivered he delivered the sermon at the preacher's seminar. Uh, he was because he was quite aware of the secluded life in the, of the seminary and the turmoil of Berlin outside his walls, where fascists and communists fought in the streets. After its defeat in the Great War, Germany, a once proud nation, had been forced to sign the hated Versailles Treaty. Inflation was rampant, unemployment had reached an unprecedented peak, an unpopular government in Weimar created cared little for the church and seemed unable to govern the state. The more sober elements in the German population put their heads down and worked all the hours for low pay, which is what you said, to rebuild the nation. They got a pay cut every day. Yeah. I don't know. How long would you work if you got a pay cut every day? Oh, silence. <laughs> the, the, the Jesus answer is, I would do this job for free. But the human answer is, not very long. If you yeah. were getting a pay cut every day, because eventually you're going to run out, you're not going to get paid anything. Yeah. And nobody wants to work for no, for no money. <laughs> so you don't know. I used to work for this organization called Lutheran City Ministries. That's closed now. That's a long and gruesome story, but... I'd get my paycheck every two weeks in a white envelope, and there'd be a percentage on it. Oh, this pay period, you got 75% of your pay. By the end of the year, they always managed to somehow bring it all even. But, you know, if you're trying to manage your uh, income, and you're wondering, when is it going to say 50%? (laughs) Right. It never said 100%, but, yeah. Yep. So, and and don't underestimate the violence caused by the leftist communists and he's that's it fascist but that was before the nazis this was veterans groups and there were all kinds of veterans groups that were right wing and they were just literally beating each other in the streets so this was this was in 1926 this was not uh 2002 america just just the magnitude is different but the 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 ideas and the reactions are similar so you want to just go right into the sermon? You can, sure. You can, uh, since Mike has your copy of the book, we'll let I'll let you respond naturally to it. Is no, that okay? Stay there, stay yeah, you stay there. You you are a guest. You do what we tell you. <laughs> so this is what he writes. This is his introduction. So sermon to the preacher's seminar. This is from Dietrich. What? Oh, why don't you read the psalm? <laughs> Heaven forbid we read this psalm. Yes, you can read, read the psalm, but you really only need to read the first verse. Yeah, read read the first read that first uh, the first, first what do you call it the first section? Yeah, read the first section. So this is uh, Psalm one twenty seven, which is the text for this sermon. Yeah, the psalm says this: Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. This is the text. It's, there, there's another back half of the psalm, but Dietrich doesn't really uh, allude to too much of it at all. It. Yeah. So he really focuses on that first part, which is, uh, if unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in vain. So this is how he begins. So the beginning... Again, sermon to the preacher's seminar. He says, We live in a time where, when more than ever before, we speak and must speak of building and rebuilding. 
We speak of how our commerce must grow and what trade agreements will be brought about this result today or tomorrow as quickly as possible. We speak of the best arrangements on workers' wages and how workers and employers alike can find a common interest in success. We ask ourselves how we can begin to become once more a rich, trouble-free, happy, and respected people. We work today as perhaps we've never worked before to achieve that goal as soon as possible. We all want to do our best to add our one stone to this building. God knows that there are others who do not think like this. Let us pray to God that he restores their sight. But we speak here only of those who use the word building seriously who really put their life and their working strength into it. And of these, there are truly many, very many. Woe betide us if we are not among them. With the question of commerce, there is another question closely associated with it, the social question. How much this is talked about and how much is already being done. And we thank those men and women who dedicate themselves to this and do fruitful work. And every one of us here would wish to belong to this band of men and women who take seriously love of their neighbor and this work. It reminds me of the passage in James. Nick is now an expert in James, right? What was that about going to a country and we'll make some money? And... Yeah, the talking about how it's basically foolish to, to make plans without... Uh, without God involved, if you make plans only according to what you want to do, and go into such and such country for such a long time to make how much ever, however much money, make um, your plans as if there is no God, as if there is no God, right? Yeah. It's foolish. Then it reminded me of the fool. Thank you, foolish. <laughs> the fool who wanted to tear down his barns and build bigger. What happened to him? You fool! What? That very night, the Lord <laughs> demanded his soul from him. Yeah. Yeah. He died. Yeah, he died. Sorry. Being simplistic, I see three things in there. Um, to build and make your plans as if there is no God. The opposite would be to do what you're going to do um, because your plans are in lo- aligned with God's will. And more typically, the one that most of us do is... Yep, I'm going to do this. Lord, bless this. <laughs> and off I go, right? Uh, it's striking to me in our culture right now. It's striking to me how germ that's very German, by the way, to want to be someone who is contributing and building up the culture, the economy, the be a giver, not a taker. I think I better not go any further than that. But we have so many takers today in our country. So... John F. Kennedy, what did he say? Ask not. Ask not what your was that. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what can you do for countries that out goes. Yeah, something like that. That that's kind of crystallizes this idea of giving back when uh, we don't we don't really. Yeah, I, I would say that's an idea that has no traction anymore, or attraction anymore. Yeah. What can I do for my country? Right, and so he's he's addressing these issues. So we mentioned we're in the they're in the middle of a to quote sports again. They're in the middle of a rebuild, and they're all trying to do their part. And some people are doing their part, others aren't. And he's calling them to say, "Hey, we need we're this is what we've been this is what we need to do because this is a very practical thing." So he's addressing he's doing what 
I think a lot of preachers do in their sermons is he's addressing a very practical issue. And so he says, this is what we need to do. But then he also says, this is, so this launches him into the psalm because he goes into later on on page eight, if you're following along in the book, which I haven't, I'll put a link in the, in the show notes here. If you wanted to go buy it, it was like 12 bucks. But he says, page top of page 18, he says, but let us hear the words of the Psalms unless the Lord builds the house. Unless the Lord builds the house. Anyone who hears these words, all right, sees in them judgment over all times of frantic building and over all times of secure possession. If only the hands of men build the house and the Lord does not build, he says, there is nothing. There are only two things that we must fully understand unless the Lord builds and its builders labor in vain. So if you're making plans, that's fine. But make sure that we're making them with asking for God's direction and for God's guidance, for God's will. And like we talked about before at length about prayer, that ours, our plans are aligned with his. Yeah, so, so what I was saying earlier, phrase it, not... Um, it should be like this. Um, the first question to God would be, should I be doing this? And not, um, I'm doing this. Bless me, Lord, because I asked you. Yeah, so a lot of times we, we're very headstrong and off we go, whether it's ministry. Seminary. Getting close to retirement. I'm done with Christian work. Now I'm going to go. I'm channeling somebody. I'm going to go up here, and we're going to build a house up here. And we're going to go fishing every I'm day. I'm done, and, you know, I've earned my reward. I've earned, yes. And I think, I've, wow, my reward is not here. My reward isn't here. Uh, but anyway, very American yeah. Christian idea. So building with God. So he, he asks in this sermon, he poses the question. He says the following. He says, but what does it mean that God should build? Is there on earth a building, a house, a city that has fallen from heaven that was not built by men? Does this verse mean that we have to wait until such a miracle happens? If all our building is in vain, really in vain, which means of no value, why do we, re- why do we begin to rebuild what has been destroyed instead of waiting for God to build? Why do we continue to work to establish a church where once it belonged? Why do we struggle for the moral and religious education of our children if all we do is in vain? In this way, many argue if they take the words in vain seriously. And yet another voice is raised and with comfort says, certainly all our doing is in vain if we do only what, what you said, Pastor Hill, what we want to do. Then we hope for nothing. But when we are most careful to do what God wants and not what we want, then it is as though the Lord himself builds. For how else can the Lord build except through us? It is only when we build other than in the spirit of the Lord that our very best work is in vain. People who talk like that are certainly right. Woe betide us if we do not go to work with our full strength and goodwill. As much as Solomon did. Right. Well, I mean, so Psalm Vanity, 27 yeah. is a psalm of Solomon, right? Yeah. One of the few that Solomon writes, but yes, all is vanity. And Solomon's the guy to know that. Solomon built all kinds of stuff, acquired all kinds of things, and didn't quite get it. I was listening to built a temple that was one of the wonders of the world. Yeah, pools and all that good stuff. And 
I was listening to a podcast that suggested that Ecclesiastes is really uh, kind of like a letter of warning to his children. <laughs> like I spent years of doing this, that, and the other thing and acquiring all this. And what did it get me? Nothing. Because it was vanity. It was all in vain. Doesn't he go on to talk about the Tower of Babel? He does. You want to jump down to that part? No, it, it just, no. it's linked. <laughs> right. You might need to read the whole thing. Sure, we can do that. So he says, yes, it is so. We fail to see the danger in raising a new Tower of Babel. It's at the bottom of page 19. Tower of Babel, from which we say that we have raised it to heaven ourselves, that now we can no longer need the work of God, but our own will can take the place of that. We really believe that we have done all and enough with our work of religion and moral renewal, and we never think that there's anything else to be said. It is good, as good as we are. All we want to say is we all want with our heart to be rich, happy people, and to each be good, happy person, be a good, happy person, and have a merciful God. Ah, this is something that we can give ourselves, nor can we believe possible by ourselves. And that makes me think of a... How this, many of our churches have had that? I can't remember the, the seminar about how to build wealth, whatever the, that guy's name is. Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and it's kind of the same thing. It's it's and, people and will the, come to that, call them together for a meeting about how to live the Christian life. Yeah, it'll be cricket time. Right, and and not that not that good stewardship and financial management is a bad thing, but the reason they come is because they go, oh, I can pay off my debts faster. Oh, I can do this and. Again, it's a good thing. Is that different but, from my best life now? Well, it's Dave Ramsey. Well, but best life now, I think, is Joel Osteen. I, I understand. I'm just I'm just saying that the desire to be a good steward of your money is not an evil thing. But when it trumps the the purpose of why you're here, you're not here to build generational wealth. You're not here to pay off your student loans. I mean, those are good okay, things. so we're, we're in just How about teaching generational Christianity? Absolutely. We don't have time for that. Well, right. <laughs> no, um, sadly, we don't. Uh, or we don't take the time to, to get... I, I hear you loud and clear. Absolutely. So, uh, I, was it Pat who was talking about about the uh, youth group, the youth that he used to teach at a certain church? And how many of them are atheists now? I think it was Pat. It might have been Paul. Well, money will solve that problem. I was just going to say, maybe they didn't do a finance class. I'm just saying, so we were talking we about... put more effort into generational Christianity. Right. Than so there was, there was a critique. There's a critique of a youth group. It might have been that youth group, actually. Um, that the culture that was being created was kind of like a come hang out with your friends kind of a culture and not necessarily a Christianity culture. And we're not saying that we have all the answers. I mean, Mike, you've been in ministry for a grand total of what, eight days, seven days? And uh, pastoral ministry. <laughs> pastoral, pastoral ministry, my yes, uh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, By the way, Mike, we have no idea where we're going when we start. Yeah, that's true. If you haven't figured that out. Yeah, we get sidetracked very easily. Yeah, but well, that's okay. We just are bouncing <laughs> off each other like we have but, OCD. But the, the idea of creating this, I like that phrase, generational Christianity, a faith that's continuously passed on and passed on, it goes, to me, it goes back to what Nick was saying about the, the fatherlessness and... I mean, you look at the catechism, right? The catechism was designed to be taught by who? 
It was taught to be taught by the by the parents, by the head of the household, by the father. And so you take that away and you say, okay, so my kid is only going to get his Christian teaching from school or from youth group, which is once maybe once a week, maybe once every other week kind of a deal. I had someone tell me, well, they hear about Jesus enough in school. They don't need to hear about him at home. That that was an argument for why they don't do devotions because they didn't want to. Um, it just didn't. Our values are so screwed up that it's not. It's not even. It, there's no. It's no reason why Islam continues to rise and Christianity continues to fall, I, it, and other things like that. You talked about Islam, but but they are a a faith tradition. I don't even call it faith, but. It's a tradition that they actually practice in their homes. They work inside out from mm-hmm. the home outward to the mosque. We kind of flip that on its head, and we've become so institutionalized in some yeah. ways that we start from the church on out to the home. And, and yeah. I don't think when you read uh, Luther, he never intended it that way. It's, I think it was always a, you know, you don't want to, it's like the drunken man getting on a horse thing, you know, you always fall on one side <laughs> or the other. Side, I think yeah. he was trying to be a healthy balance between yeah. the two. Introduction of the small catechism goes something like what? That the head of the household should teach to his family, right? And that you you memorize the small catechism. Yeah, come on, seminary. Hey, well, yeah, you're you're, you're off the hook. You don't, have, yeah, you don't have to know it anymore. That's right. Yeah, the head of the household is to teach his, the, these pillars. But I think that the issue is that number one, they don't they don't do that. Um, my mom and dad were very rare. Um, you know, they, they did go through the catechism with me when I was in catechism class. They would go through it. They were learning that stuff, too. But like you said, Mike, the, the ideas in the, the, the Islam, we, we don't believe that Islam's—I'm going to try to say this the, the best way. The Islam tradition does not lead to heaven. But the people who practice Islam, what they've done is they've made it their entire life. So it's not just— I mean, I'm, I go to the mosque and I pray and I do this, and then that does it. That penetrates every single part of their life. For the typical American Christian, American Christians are Christians on Sundays and maybe what a Wednesday. It's it doesn't affect their life, over, you know, throughout the rest of the week or throughout the rest of the year, throughout the rest. Of, it's, it doesn't. It, it isn't in the homes. Kids aren't praying with their with their parents. Parents aren't teaching their kids that the ways of this world are skewed and destructive and satanic. They're, they're actually saying it's easier to do this. It, you should do this. It's loving your neighbor if you do this. To sound Baptist for a minute, um, what happens is the parents demonstrate to their children that, that faith has no real part of, of life. It's not reality. It's just something you do over there. But it's not it's central. It's compartmentalized. It's not central. Yeah. To be Muslim is to be central. Uh, the Mormon. I'll just get away from Islam. The Mormons are like that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And so, I was had, just had this conversation with with my wife uh, to over the weekend because she was uh, she's finishing her paper so she for uh, her colloquy process so she's going to become a Lutheran te- Lutheran school teacher and. She had to write like a 14-page paper about her faith, and part of the the things that she had to write about was the you know the, the two kingdoms. And I told uh, we were talking about how the temptation for the Christian and um, and then Ron actually, sorry Ron, I'm going to bring you up here. Uh, Ron said last night in Bible study that the church isn't to be political, 
And to me, I told them just, you got to be careful with that because um, that's the typically the way that we like to take the, take the church and say, okay, we're going to put our church here, our church life here, and then we're going to put the world life here. And they don't, no, and the what? A real life. Over right. Here. A real life over here. And they don't, and they don't mix. And all I said to him was just be careful because I really think, I mean, Luther never, Luther said that there is distinctions. Of the of those kingdoms, but they they interact all the time, and they should interact all the time. This is why his doctrine of vocation is so beautiful because it's taking the faith and it's making a part of absolutely everything that you do. And so, when we did the senior Bible class at a church, not to be named Christ our Savior, <laughs> that's right? to be named, but we're going to name him anyways. Yeah, and and uh, you were leading the class, right? And kind of pushed you to say vocation and this like lifelong Lutherans all over the place and they did not know what vocation was. Not even an educated guess. It was like, oh, we've never heard that one before. Right. And we had just done a we had just done a month or a two month long Bible study about vocation. Remember that? Because you had yeah, you had to yeah. teach part of it. I had to teach part of it too. Maybe, maybe we're just not think, good teachers. Why do you think that is? I'm that kid who always likes to ask questions. Why do you think that is? That people don't understand vocation? Yes, I mean, that's just a symptom of a bigger problem. I what's, am betting what's... you could run 12 years of sermons at Christ our Savior for multiple pastors, including me. And me. Nobody ever said vocation to them. Yeah. Yeah. It's not part of the, it's not part of the regular vernacular. And yeah. so I would say that they would, I would say that they know, yeah, we're supposed to be Christian outside of, outside of church. Yeah, we're supposed to take our faith out to the nations. Yeah, we're supposed to go and proclaim the good news, and yeah, we're supposed to go do that, but they don't, they don't know how to do that. But the other thing is, yeah, I, I think part of it was that you say the word vocation, and they think, oh, I just took one of those, you know, three weeks with my family up north, right? Um, it's it's an unfamiliar word. It's not a word that we use routinely, and People we in never Ohio do it when they go up north. They, they come get up in here. the water, Lake Erie, yeah, Lake Erie. It's so, such a Michigan thing. I'm going up north. It's, and it's a great place. My mom and dad are in northern Michigan, too. No, I don't understand any of that. But, but I, think you're, I think you're right. I think part of it is... Example, we're right? we, saying in the class, vocation is like an overarching principle that hang, everything hangs off of, not salvation, but the Christian life hangs off of, and they don't recognize that at all. They just see the little components. Yeah. But I think I think you you're right. We do like the study or we read a book about vocation, and then we never ever ever talk about it ever again. Well, so you made a comment about sermons. I think that's the place. I mean, that's the pulpit. That's the place you can reach the most people at one time, from Sunday to Sunday. And I think that's uh, that's where it should be talked about. I mean, yeah. John Gerhardt, again, the uh, whose pastor was John Art would talk about when you preach, you're supposed to exhort, rebuke, uh, correct, warn, console, you know, all of this paradigm of law gospel, but there's, it's just not a law gospel homily, but you're actually teaching something from the pulpit. Yeah. Uh, as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why you, Pastor Hills taught me, and I think he's taught Nick pretty well, and I try to do this in every sermon, to have kind of a catechetical moment mm -hmm. in the in the sermon. Right. 
or at least you're hitting what what is your baptism? What is the Lord's Supper? Right? What is vocation? Yeah. What you know those kinds of deals? Yes, the pulpit is used not only for so preaching. I'm going to say heretical things about too. law and gospel. So your ears are going to burn here. <laughs> That's insufficient to tell your people you did wrong. You're forgiven. Now go back to what you were doing, right. Right. and never, never, ever bring up discipleship. Yeah. Ever, uh, because. That's pietistic. Oh, that's telling people they have to do things. Well, I'm sorry. God's word says they have to do things. We we joke about if you go through the New Testament and line out everywhere, Paul. We'll just pick on Paul. Everywhere he and James. Everywhere he says you have to do something, half of the New Testament be gone. I'd add Jesus too in there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah go, too. go, <laughs> make, teach. <laughs> Be light, right? Be yeah. light, yeah. So, so do you want to bet? If I could have a secret survey and force all the Lutheran pastors to answer, how many of their lives, their Christianity is compartmentalized? Sure, and very few. Compartmentalized in their work. Yeah, yeah. I never thought of it that way, but you said it now a few times now that compartmentalized. I think that's yeah, it's spot on. Not an original idea. I'm just repeating it. But <laughs> don't tell, don't say that. So we're gonna roll roll things back here for a second. So as I'm remembering it, the school shooters, at least since Columbine, all had fathers. So having a father is not a solution, right? Not for everything, though. It can help things, but it's not a, a cure-all solution. For well, what kind of fathers did they have? Right. They need godly fathers. That's what they right. need. Who are involved in their children's life. Right. Who don't uh, yeah. bat an eye. At, you know, fathers who don't bat an eye because your kid has 35 weapons and bombs and or, you know, all the other craziness in the home. In the home or, and purchase, don't notice it. or purchasing a four-year kid who's yeah. four, 14 years old, 15 years old. That was the case with Oxford, right? right? Dad bought the gun for his son and then didn't teach him proper gun use or safety. It yes. shouldn't have even been, been there first place some fathers abandon their families and others abandon them in place that's what i'm going to say i haven't left but i've left right well it's like tyler said earlier there's a lot of fathers that are a, a piece of work um, but the importance is, is godly fathers in the household that's what we need i wanted to use a stronger word than a piece of work i wanted to use uh what is that what scubala? luther's favorite scubala? <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. I, I've seen it. I've seen results. I've, I've had friends. Yeah. Uh, we've experienced it here all the time. I, I don't think any. I don't think I've. Sent, I don't think I've met the father of any of our kids that have come down here more than maybe once when they were dropping off something or they were close by or something like that. Like you, you don't see fathers of children in this neighborhood in Southwest Detroit doing their jobs, and that is one of the roots of all of the issues that are surrounding America. So let's head towards the conclusion of the sermon or we'll never get there. Are you getting warm? Okay. No, so, I want us to get there. That's yeah. So he says vain. So we talk about the vanity, right? We you mentioned Solomon and he, I like what Dietrich says here at the bottom of page 20 he says that when we humans say in vain, what did Solomon say about generational wealth? Didn't he say, I'm going to be a little bit vulgar, you're going to hand it off to your sons and they're going to piss it away? 
pretty much what he says. Mm -hmm. uh, that generational wealth is not something to pursue, yeah. and we see that in the world all the time. Second, sure. third generation. Yeah. What can you What can you pass on to your kids? Right. Well, not your face. Well. Well, that, that was sarcastic. <laughs> like, wait a second. Yeah, yeah, that's what you should pass on to yeah. your kids. I don't know what you want. Yeah, that's not what we're focused on. Um, but here's a man who had unbelievable wealth who's saying this is vanity, accumulating wealth to hand on to the next generation. Right. right. Is so vanity. Right. So, he talk, so what Dietrich says is we humans say in vain. He says we mean this world. So he's talking about what's happening here. So, yeah, that's why it's vanity, because everything that you pass on that's of this world is going to what, Nick? Burn up. <laughs> it's going to be destroyed. Yes, it's going to be burned up. It's going to be destroyed. This, this generational wealth that you're talking about is going to be destroyed eventually. So when God says vain, what he means is for eternity. He writes, the psalmist knew as well as we do that the houses and cities built without God have survived in this world. But from the point of view of this world, they were not built in vain. And that the cities built by God chosen often enough were soon destroyed. Then he says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers or the builders labor in vain. Not in vain for this world. The Tower of Babel was higher than all the towers. Not in vain for the commercial or the moral health of the people. Not in vain for the terrifying rat race of the commercial struggle of, in the world market. In vain for eternity. In vain. For that on which the light of the rule of God does not shine is in vain. For God's grace is far from it, in vain. For God's love has not protected it. And so just that reminder that the most important thing that we're doing, it must have God, you must have God in this. You must have Christ in this. The most important thing that you can pass on to your family is not a checkbook. It's not stocks. It's not crypto. It's not any of those things. What is matter? What matters is your faith in Jesus, which is the forgiveness of sins. That your sins are forgiven. If I can pass on anything to my kids, is that he's confident. He or she confidently knows that their sins are forgiven. Yes, not easy to say and hard to do. So many of our volunteers have children who have walked away from the faith, and they're heart and they're heartbroken over it. Yeah. So. God says, so when it says, this is at the, the last chapter or the last, uh, the last paragraph of the sermon, he says, God's building for eternity is forgiveness, an overpowering divine love. So long as we are on this earth, we remain and our work remains full of sin. It is temporal as everything else is, but God has looked upon it. God has built it. God has forgiven. So long as we are at work, we, are not, we will not build the kingdom of God. But so long as God looks upon us in our work and has compassion among the godless, so surely he will himself build the, his house, the eternal kingdom, where all is spirit. God the Father will reveal his lordship, and we, through Jesus Christ his Son, have access to him and for, receive forgiveness of all of our sins. And God will be all in all. Your kingdom come. Maranatha. Yes, come Lord Jesus. That's it, right? That's, that's it. That's the, that's the end. That's where he leaves the sermon. And I think that's a really good place to end a sermon like this is with that reminder that what God means by it, unless God is the builder, it means nothing. So if I was at your order, if I had been invited to your ordination, Mike, <laughs> 
exclusive. It was exclusive, yes. It was exclusive. If I had been to your ordination, what I've said to friends at my at their ordinations, when you get to the part where all the pastors speak yes. over you, right, that was... Yep. That was uh, grueling. I heard that you had to, you were like. I had to grab a hold of the railing at that point. Yeah. 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 So what I said to, specifically to one of my friends who was right up until he was ordained, he was really, he said, he literally said, what if I'm not good enough? And what if I can't do this? And what my verse that I gave to him was at his ordination was, what Jesus says to Peter after Peter has that bold confession of you are the Christ, you are the son of living God. Do you remember what Jesus says to Peter when he changes, when he, well, he changes his name to Peter? He says, you are Peter. You're upon this rock. Yeah. Yeah. He says, I'll build my church. Right. Yeah. He says, I will build right. my church. In other words, God is the builder. God is the creator. He's the one who's doing the work. It belongs to him. And so if you think that you can't do it, you're probably right. In fact, you are right because you can't and you don't. It's Christ doing all of the work as the builder. Well, it really got me. You mentioned my ordination there when, uh, when you, each individual pastor comes up and lays their hand on your head. My vicar supervisor quoted the passage from Colossians chapter 1 that your strength is in the Lord. And it, it, uh, that's when I grabbed the railing at that point and yeah. realized my own weakness in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It came crashing down on me at that moment. Yeah, and I think, if anything, the ministry has highlighted all of my weaknesses. You <laughs> uh, <Amen>. said, <laughs> said amen. Yes, so it's always important to remember that it is that it's God doing the building, and that's what Dietrich is really saying in this psalm here and in this, in this text. He's reminding the German people, yes, work. Go do what you've been called to do. But make sure that what you're doing this, that what you're doing is being guided and directed by God, and that you're doing these things in faith. Otherwise, otherwise, this is this is pointless and useless. And the fact that he is able to recognize this at age 20 to me is remarkable. Um, I was sitting on a bar stool when I was 20. You still do, <laughs> but you know, you think about his his. His awareness, mm-hmm. his theological awareness is, is actually quite stunning at this point in time. At, at this point in his evolution, though, he hasn't had that grand spiritual awakening that's waiting for him in Harlem. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah that's a good Where part. He, when he finds out um, what people actually live out their faith. Right, right, right. Well, he takes yeah. he takes theory and puts it into practice. He sees it in practice. Right, sees it in practice, yeah. and then so. he has he has hope for that. So, where we'll leave you today, Psalm one twenty seven, the verse that Dietrich used, which I think that we can continue to do. It's unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. If you are making plans, if you are serving, if you are doing all these things, if you're not doing it with the Lord's hand, then it's in vain. Make sure you seek seek the Lord, and that looks in different ways. Uh, you can, if you have a question about life change, life direction, and you're really contemplating, consult your pastor. This is why they're here is to help you navigate through these things. And you know, you have questions about your family, questions about uh, about your your friends and your work. Talk to your pastor. Talk to other brothers. This is God puts these people in in your life so that God can align our wills to His, which is ultimately what He desires for us. That's why we pray. 
as we talked about last week, thy will be done. So that's going to do it for us. Mike, thanks for being here. Nick, you did not hardly talk at all today, so that was a nice change of pace for us. What'd you say? His fear level is rising. <laughs> Maybe a little bit as he's getting ready to go back to seminary. So we'll leave you with this as we do every week. Go with God's peace. If no one has told you yet, he loves you and so do we. Take care, everybody. We'll talk with you next time for a brand new episode. Hey, by the way, as I'm looking at it, uh, uh, Moritz Sider won the uh, call that cup last night. Yeah. Um, that's not a following you. Generational wealth. Sorry to go back to this. Say that again. Generational wealth. What about you? You accumulate wealth, you hand it off to your. Say the Solomon. What did Solomon say? I'm telling you. No, no, I'm say that. Say it again. What did he have to say about generational wealth? What did Solomon yes. say? No, I want you to say what did Solomon say about generational wealth? Say that. This is a tradition. <laughs> Sometimes in the podcast. Very next topic. You get the <laughs> Here comes the ice cream truck. Here come the ice cream truck, yes. Yeah, def- a tradition unlike any other, right? They're just like the masters. There's your golf. There's your golf for the day.